This is To Hear Knows When, Great Irish Albums Revisited, a Learn and Sing production. And this is a podcast about great Irish albums. It's named after a My Bloody Valentine song. If you go to at Learn and Sing on Twitter or paulmcdermott.ie forward slash podcast, you'll find links to episode notes and lots of further information on all the albums we've covered so far. So if you're new to the podcast, that's albums by Nina Hines, Therapy, That Petrol Emotion, The Fatima Mansions, Whipping Boy, Inter Paradise, Jet Plane Landing and many, many more. And I'd ask that if you've enjoyed any episode to date, then maybe please consider subscribing, liking and sharing. Now the last episode featured The Shanks, a band intrinsically inspired by their North Cork geography. And likewise Jubilee All-Stars, the focus of this episode, were a band inspired by the history, culture and geography of their surroundings, in this case the city of Dublin, and no more so than on their second album, Lights of the City, released in 2000 on independent records. There's a link back to episode 9 of the podcast. That episode featured Eamon Crudden from Dead Elvis Records and producer Mark Carolyn chatting to me along with Graham and Anto from Wormhole, all about Wormhole's Chicks Dig Scars album. In 1995, the third release by Dead Elvis, following that Wormhole album and in motions the language of everyday life, was the Jubilee 7-inch single Don't Give Up On Me, which Mark Carolyn had also recorded. This followed Jubilee's debut 7-inch single, Everyone's Clown, that they put out on their own high-tone label earlier on in 1995. Sometime after that Dead Elvis 7-inch, the band of brothers Niall, Fergus and Barry McCormack, along with Lee Casey, added All Stars to their name and then came to the attention of Lakota Records, a Sony-funded label started by Connor Brooks, who had earlier managed Puppy Love Bomb and Power of Dreams. A series of three EPs followed, all once more recorded with Mark Carolyn. Whenever I think of Jubilee All-Stars, I immediately think about the third of these Lakota EPs, Keep On Chewing, and particularly I think of the video that accompanied its title track. That video hilariously featured a pastiche of JFK's assassination and saw the band memorably driving around Dublin in a yellow Cadillac. It seemed to be a regular feature on No Disco around about 1997. The Melody Makers' Mark Luffman described the Jubilee All-Stars music as a defiantly fragile brand of low-tone country blue heartbreak. Who better then to produce Sunday Miscellany, their first album, than Stan O'Rocked from Stars of Heaven, who featured back on episode 7 of the podcast. This made complete sense. Jubilee All-Stars sounded like direct descendants of the Stars of Heaven. Indeed, Hot Press magazine once described them as spiritual successors to such holy ghosts as the Stars of Heaven, the Sewing Room and even the Radiators. After Sunday Miscellany, the band started planning for a second Lakota album. Finding themselves stuck in a type of demo hell, they eventually negotiated their way out of that record deal. 
What came next was Lights of the City, an album recorded in a shed in Windy Arbour, produced by Tom Monaghan from the Pernice Brothers and released on Dublin label Independent Records in 2000. It's a record about Dublin, about a pre-Celtic Tiger Dublin, a Dublin that was just on the cusp of change. It's an incredible artistic achievement. Everything about it is just perfect. So here we go. To Hear Knows When, Great Irish Albums Revisited, Episode 28, Lights of the City by Jubilee All-Stars. It's my great pleasure to welcome Lee Casey and brothers Niall, Fergus and Barry McCormack. Lee, as the drummer in the band, Lee, how did you meet the McCormack brothers, tell us? That's where we'll start. That's the easiest way to start, I suppose. Well, <laughs> well I guess that's kind of in kind of prehistory. I suppose uh, I knew Fergus and Niall from going to the same kind of punk rock gigs or Hope Promotions gigs. And, and of course, Fergus and Niall also did Casbah Promotions as well, which was pretty important at the time. So I knew them from there. I knew, you know, Fergus and Niall when they were in the grown-ups. I was sharing a house with Fergus when when he and Niall started Jubilee. They were in search of a drummer who, well, they were in search of someone who's prepared to play drums who wasn't a drummer. And they approached me. Yeah, that's where we began. I was just playing, standing up, playing a snare and a floor tom. And that was it. That was, yeah, my introduction to Jubilee and to playing drums as well you're talking 93 94 something like that lee is it i think so yeah 94 i think about kind of may 94 if i remember properly i wasn't in dublin until 97 or 98 so paint a picture of dublin in 93 94 for me myself and lee were sharing a house with timo from umac another friend of ours shane and he moved out and then alan o'boyle from decal so that house was it was a crazy house, but uh, in Fibsborough, and Fibsborough was real sort of this is this is proto hipster. This is like you know, and um, when such a thing didn't really exist, apart from the fact there was tons of bands living around there. There was, and then obviously, Eamon and Old Crudden were there, and Mark Harlan lived up there, and um, Eamon Doyle lived up there, uh, and it was it was all there was graphic designers, there was record labels, there was bands, there was pubs, there was there was venues in town. But there was no coffee shops. No coffee shops, zero coffee shops. The Woodstock, about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, so that house was a real, uh, not to sound too sort of uh, up ourselves about it, but it was a real sort of accidental creative hub. Yeah. And it, that's what people would call it now, and they'd probably get grants for it. <laughs> but there was always music being made there. Like we were rehearsing there, Decal were making music there. There was always people from bands in and out. Bands stayed there because Timo was putting gigs on. We were putting the odd stuff on. We were even putting up bands for people that we weren't putting on because it was kind of the house where that happened. That's kind of, and as Lee said, we knew each other before that, but that was a real close-knit gang in that house. And it all just kind of made sense, didn't it, Lee? Would you say? I think so. Yeah, yeah. What was the idea musically behind Jubilee? I was in London for a short period before that. and I'd got got some work in the NME. I was doing replacement work in the graphic design office there. And um, that's actually where I got we got the money to do the first single from the money I made over there. The, the pay was fabulous. It was insane. I only did three weeks with them over there. But I remember, I, I think Fergus sent me a letter or a postcard and said something like, when are you coming back? Let's start the loudest mod band in history or something like that. It was ludicrous. We were basically listening to a lot of uh, 
small faces and the kinks and the who. But we were only a kind of a mod band for about 10 minutes when we realized that musical ability was required. <laughs> and we kind of abandoned that. And then that's when, I mean, Palace and all these things were coming in from America. And this lo-fi was just about to kind of kick off. And we thought that was a kind of a, you know, it was really important to us. Lack of musical ability was kind of, we thought the less you knew, the more likely you were to be, do something interesting. Mm. It's funny, Niall, because the next podcast after this one is with Bo Morty, you know, the lads from Cork. Absolutely, yeah. They'd all say that, like, the first time they heard Palace was definitely this kind of a line in the sand for them, moving from a very kind of an indie band into something slower, definitely is a word you'd put in there. I wasn't a believer in Palace, although I remember getting the first album, I mean, you know, because you had to have it and then listening to it, just thinking, Jesus, this is like, it's a bit like you're kind of having to have your, uh, your porridge, you know, it's very kind of it's tough going. So we, we weren't, I, I personally wasn't a true believer in that, but I just, I could see this is the, a perfect example yeah. of complete inability as we saw it. We, we were coming from a punk background as well. So definitely DIY and, you know, and of course we were listening to Neil Young and The Replacements. And so anything that was kind of basic rock and roll was kind of what we were into. And in a way, Palace were kind of anti-rock and roll, which I think we fell into eventually as well when we realised we couldn't do rock and roll, you know. But Because <laughs> um, up to that, we were in the grown-ups, which were a kind of a really kind of a high concept, idiotic punk band, you know. But So it was a bit of a of, of a switch, but it, our central kind of way of going about things, our, se- our central belief in kind of DIY and that sort of thing didn't change. But our, our we were kind of catching up with this sort of uh, the mood of the time, which was kind of I suppose post grunge mm. is that horrible term. Yeah, I was really into the Jayhawks, but uh, we didn't have the chops to pull off the Jayhawks. So I think that's what everyone thought we were Palace obsessives because we were like Jayhawks fans trying to do what the Jayhawks do, but it came out very lo-fi. But Barry, you've mentioned the Jayhawks there. Yeah. And Niall, you mentioned the replacements. These were all names of bands that I'd read about in the music press, but I couldn't afford these records. I couldn't, even if I had the money, I probably wouldn't have been able to to get them, you know. It's mad looking back on it, like you say, they're the Jayhawks, but I didn't hear the Jayhawks until years later, you know. I, I, I only knew the Jayhawks because I think it was Super Channel. Okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I think they had a, a music show and like the Jayhawks waiting for the sun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, was on, on, on repeat and I was just like, what the hell is this? What's this? W- without that, I probably, I don't know if I would have heard. So we were always sort of conceptually more together than, than we were musically. So like Huggy Bear would have been DIY influence on it. I mean, they played uh, in Dublin. And we met them and their whole thing was put out seven inches, just put them out. And they had they had a, an A4 photocopied with how to put out a seven inch. Uh, and I remember I got it off and then they wrote to us, fair play. They I, I gave them an address. We're all old guys now, but you, like you, when you say to people that you, you literally wrote a letter and you put a stamp on it and you put to a central PO box somewhere in London and someone in the band would write back to you. And Huggy Bear sent back uh, pressing plants, you know, uh, mastering, how, how to do it. But literally a DIY, how to make a seven inch. So we were always really interested in that sort of the, the mechanics of it, and the ownership of it and the authenticity of it and all that sort of thing. And the music sort of always sort of slightly came second, but not not came second, but 
music was like, let's see what happens. So like Niall and Barry are both really good songwriters with different styles and myself and Lee would just be filling in and, and I can't speak for Lee, but like, you know, trying to play along with, with these songs. So the sound sort of became a low, lo-fi wasn't the thing when we started, but then people mentioned bands to me and I'd be like, who? I don't know, you know, and then I'd, then I'd be reading the music press and they'd be talking about all these bands like your Smog and Palace and all that. You'd be like, oh. I remember someone saying to us, you're so like the feelies. It's uncanny how much you sound like the feelies. And I was like, I have never heard the feelies. We thought it was a family who lived three doors down the road from us. <laughs> Which it was. Yeah. yeah. Lee. I just think probably also for, for context, I think that kind of lineage with bands like the Stars of Heaven. Oh, yeah. That was probably quite important as well. And, yeah. you know, just that it hasn't been said yet. But Would you, Lee, have been old enough to have seen them play live? I never got to see them live. Fergus did. I, I never did. I saw them a few times as well, yeah. 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 Like, for me, they're the greatest Irish band ever, which which sounds completely weird. To even mates of my own age and older than me, they're like, what? So our whole big star thing, replacements thing, then Teenage Fan Club came along and you're like, oh my God. And like, I remember reading a review of Teenage Fan Club never having heard them. It was the first gig in London, reviewing the NME. And I was like, I just knew by what was written in this review. It was like one column review. And I was like, I, I love this band. I'd never heard them, but I knew that they were um, shambolic. They were into Big Star and Replacements. They were like, the songs were really tuneful. And then I heard Catholic Education, I heard Everything Flows. And then, and then it went on. And, and I still love Teenage Fan Club to this day. But like as Barry said, we never we never had those chops like to be able to do three part harmonies or to be you know to carry it carry that off and that that kind of gave us a, a unique sound. So I think Lee Lee is spot on about that whole Stars of Heaven and 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 there was other sort of Dublin bands as well like that never even as big as the Stars of Heaven who we would have been into and 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 had a sort of kinship with. Can you remember any of those names, Fergus? Even bands like you know Slowest Clock. Oh yeah, Frank Price. Yeah, yeah, great band. Yeah, earlier how I was a massive. Golden Horde, obsessive. The Horde, yeah, live. Their records were sucked, but live they were amazing. Yeah, they, 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 well, yeah, their records, they never really captured them on, on record. I love they were kind of so camp, and obviously I hadn't heard of the MC5 at that stage, so when I when I eventually heard the MC5, I was like, oh, hang on a minute. Like the Horde <laughs> were gods in Cork, like literally gods when the Horde would play Henry's. It was like... Full houses every time the horde came down. Amazing. I mean, I knew the Ramones bit of the kind of of their uh, so yeah yeah they were a brilliant live band, great fun. And I was a big fan of um, the Sewing Room, who were kind of contemporaneous, but they came from Stars of Heaven and Hey Paulette. Hey Paulette, yeah, great band, yeah. The, their first album and Nico was was a big influence on me. Just the, the, amazing the, the, yeah. the songwriting and. And just, you know, it was that they were doing it literally in the same studio. And Stan, and didn't Stan again have a hand in that? The two lads from Hey Paulette with Stan, I think, wasn't it? I think. Yeah, yeah. It was like t- like three songwriters for the first record. Yeah. So that's Seven Inch then, your own Seven Inch. And then Eamon Crudden brought out the second one for a year, I think, wasn't it? And that's kind of the first time I'd have heard of you, really, was the Dead Elvis Seven. Yes. Yeah. Eamon and O came around to the house in Avondale Road and Filter and demanded that we go to the pub with them. And I mean demanded. If you know Eamon, you'd know that, 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 that I'm not exaggerating. Uh, went round to the hut and basically himself and O shouted at us about how you had to sign with Dead Elvis. I have to sign with Dad Elvis where we're all sitting pints of Guinness and they would do a record, we'd do a record, we'd do a record and we knew them and, we were, and we'd already recorded um, with Mark for the first one anyway so um, we were like yeah let's let's do that and that's how the, the second single came along yeah it was um, 
was being harangued by the Crudens in, in the hut, essentially, is what happened there. In, in a good way, I'll say. Their, their enthusiasm was infectious. And it was great. I, we did it in the night and they sent it off the next day and it was out like within a week or, you know, as short a time span as possible. It was great. This is one of my favourite stories that I sent the first one to John Peel to Radio 1. Just John Peel, Radio 1, Broadcasting House, blah, blah, blah. Never heard anything. Sent the second one and then one day we're all in the house in Fibsra and like I was saying earlier, that was a real sort of gathering house so that the sitting room would have had like 10 people playing Listen to music and playing Sega Mega Drive. And the phone rang one asked me and said, does John Peel is on the phone for you? I looked around and everyone who would have actually pulled a prank on me was sitting there and there was no mobile phones at that stage. I was like, so it's none of this lot pulling the piss out of me. When I picked up the phone, it was John Peel. And of course I was like, oh my God. He was like, I'm so sorry I didn't get your first single. I said, I got the second one and was so sorry. And he gave me his home address and he was apologizing to me. And I was like, no, you're all right. You're grand. Jesus. And we were, I remember clearly we were talking, it was the day Mark Kennedy, a football reference, Mark Kennedy had signed for Liverpool. He was the most expensive teenager at the time. And John P was saying to me, what's Mark Kennedy like? He's a dub, isn't he? Is he any use? And I was like, yeah, he's all right. Yeah, yeah. So I ended up talking football with John Peel. And then I put the phone, and he gave me his home address. And he said, now, will you resend the new one to, the, send both of them to the home address now? I said, yes, John, of course I will, John, no problem. And I went back into the room and I said to the lads, I was like, that was John Peel ringing me. That's lovely. So all, all the stories you hear about John Peel, like they're, like they're true. That That's what he used to do. As, as Lee says, that immediacy of record it, send it off, get pressed, get it back, release it. Just do it. Because people you know, after that would say to us, oh, we're going to do another demo. And then we're going to do another demo. Don't do, don't do demos. What's a demo? Just do it and put it out. So that was, that was always our mantra the whole way. Make records, put them out. Here's a little montage of Peel introducing you, okay? Important programming considerations there, and very neatly done, I think. Elvis Presley and Down from many years ago, and uh, I have to say, very possibly the only record in the programme that I could sing all the way through in a loud and tuneless voice. Here's another one from the Jubilee All-Stars, their debut session from the programme, uh, for the programme, rather. Keep on chewing. And before that, it was the Jubilee All-Stars, their first for us in session. They're not coming anymore. I'll give you the line-up when I play you another one of theirs. And this is uh, a new single, new 7 new single on Fierce Panda Records. And now the lineup of uh, Jubilee All-Stars runs thus. Lee Casey on the drums, Niall McCormick guitar and vocals, Barry McCormick guitar and vocals, Fergus McCormick on bass. And this tune's called Foolish Guy. to you too. Jubilee All-Stars in session and that's called Foolish Guy. It used to be called just simply Jubilee but why they changed it to All-Stars I can't quite remember. I'm sure somebody told me at some stage. Sorry about this. This is um, the machine has once again has defeated me sort of and I don't like that happening I have to say. Give it another chance. Uh, a couple of tracks now from uh, Dead Elvis Records in Dublin. A couple of new releases. The first from Jubilee, the second from Rumble. Broadcaster in session tomorrow night between 8 and 10 right here on Radio 1. This next is from uh, the LP that was put out uh, to go along with this year's... Uh, what's it called? Sound in the City. What's it called, that thing? Sounds... No, no, it's not the other one. It's the, the one that always happens in Manchester. Anyway, the one... Hey? 
in the city. That's the very one. Uh, but this year it was in Dublin, and uh, I went to the first couple of them and uh, had a fairly catastrophic time, really, because uh, well, the second one, they'd, uh, I hadn't booked myself a hotel room and neither had anybody else, so I went to the hotel, kind of, room for Mr Peel, and they said, they don't think so, pal. And it turned out that uh, they hadn't, so I drove back home again. But it's only it's about a four-hour drive, so who really cares? But uh, this year it was in Dublin, and I can't drive to Dublin, obviously, so I didn't go. And uh, the But I do have the LP that was issued in association with it. And the first track on there, which, incidentally, it's on, I don't know whether it's available to the public, but it's on knee-jerk records, in case you should ever get the opportunity to buy a copy of it. And it's got one or two good things on there, said he patronisingly. And the best of them is the first track, which comes from the Jubilee All-Stars, uh, formerly just Jubilee. This is called Don't Give Up On Me. Another one that fades in. That's lovely to hear those, isn't it? I never knew that he said that we, that we played that from the, in the city and he said we were the best thing on it. That's, uh, that's, that's great. Um, I'm really chuffed to hear that. Zip up. What was it? Zip up your boots, wasn't it? I think it was called. Zip up your boots, yeah. So at some stage in there after that Dead Elvis 7-inch, you, you went over and did a session. Yeah, I'm trying to think of the timeline of that. I think that was bef- before we did the first album, was it? Or But it was after we did the uh, EPs, I think, was it? I think so. I think so. Yeah, December 96, I think. That's when it was broadcast, yeah. Definitely December. Yeah. I think we had two of the EPs out at that stage and then the third EP came out after the session. So we, we signed to Lakota Records, which was Jim Carroll was the man who signed us, really. But in classic uh, A&R scenario where he he left the label almost instantly after signing us. So we were kind of fish. He got us, if you know what I mean, definitely. Um, but we were we were kind of a bit of a Marmite proposition for most people. And our problem was we really had the one pop hit, as it were, which Dead Elvis had just put out. And I I, I, I certainly wasn't writing any more um, kind of uh, pop tunes. <laughs> and Barry wasn't officially a member. I think I'm trying to think, when did you actually officially join Barry? If there was ever, it was just kind of sucked in. Um, I don't know. Yeah, it was more like I was going to the same house with friends, the same house that Lee and Fergus lived in. And using the Fergus's bedroom, which is where Jubilee were rehearsing, to start my own band, but I couldn't whip them into shape. And then eventually, uh, I just ended up like jamming along at Jubilee rehearsals, I think. And then, yeah, just sort of, then I found myself in a studio in Bow Lane, in a booth, recording a song. Like, it, you know, and then I think the next day we went to Sony Records, did we, to... Yeah. Signed, but but the week before they'd all left. It was like something from Mad Men. They'd all left to move to V two Records, and uh, we were kind of left with like you know people going like, "Great to see you, lads. Uh, who are these guys? Oh yeah, we're they're here to sign." Barney, Noel, Liam, and Frank, wasn't it? So yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. They kept, they kept playing the the song I just recorded. It was one of the first times I'd ever heard my voice recorded. They kept coming in and saying, "This is great, listen to this," and playing it, which which was this like Springsteen esque Nebraska folk dirge that didn't have much like hit potential. And every time they played it, I I had to go to the toilet because I was so self conscious about. You know, you know, when the first time you hear your own voice play back, that's not my. That's not me. 
Yeah, so I, I don't know if there, if I ever signed over like stake and lager, you know, any stage, but I would, yeah, somehow, I think whatever we signed, whatever deals we signed, I signed somewhere, so. Well, you're definitely on the second single. I think you're on the first single as well. Or you were certainly there when we recorded it, because I remember you did a lead solo on one of them. Yeah, I did like lead, lead, lead solo, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, um, I, I did. I think I did the, the lead solo on uh, Don't Give Up On Me, which is like very, it's like two two notes somewhere. But, um, two good notes. And Jack Wright played, played saxophone on the first record. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, no, when we started, so when we started out, I think we were, our, we were kind of, we were our kind of closest kind of soulmates in terms of our attitude were probably, was probably Wormhole. In the Dublin scene, and we played quite a lot of gigs with them. At that point, they were a three-piece, we were a three-piece, and they were kind of very much into this sort of, you know, musicianship was kind of a dirty word, if you know what I mean. So they, they were, and we were spiritually on the same kind of page. But I think they kind of went more out there as they as they went on, and we kind of became more conventional as we went on. So we kind of diverged. It's it's interesting in that time we we played quite a few gigs together which were always that, that was kind of a really exciting time when when nothing had formed at that stage if it was all very sort of kind of still and ambiguous and kind of hard to kind of see where it might end up those exciting sort of possibilities the other band on Lakota were the Ultramontanes and they reminded me, I suppose, of Suede or something. I I used to think very much kind of that type of thing. It was Connor Brooks, wasn't it? Um, he had managed the Power Dreams, I think. Uh, Puppy Love Bomb. And he told the Times at the time, he said, we're not offering big deals with huge advances. We're offering the right level of investment. We're also offering each band, we signed the freedom to develop in their own time. Basically, what we're now looking for are bands who are original quality acts and have the right attitude. That's kind of what he released in a press release at the time. And then added on to that, it said that he'd signed, he was still called Jubilee, and it said they're going to be working with Sean O'Hagan on their first album. That's what was tagged on to the press release. That didn't happen. I No, we did a tour. We did a mini tour with the High Lamas and we, we, we hung out with them quite a bit, but I don't. I just don't think Sean Sean really wants to do it. To be honest, the the connection there was um, the head of Sony LRD, which was the licensed repertoire division, which had uh, Creation were part of it, and um, Lakota and lots of other li- and Alpaca Alpaca Park was up the yeah that was it. Suede's label, although yeah yeah yeah. So uh, Sean O'Hagan was was the pet project of. Um, what was the, the, the main chap's name? Who, who? Jeremy. Mark? Jody guy? No, not Mark. No, it's Jeremy. 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 Jeremy Pierce. The man who's, who actually signed Oasis, Jeremy Pierce. Yeah. And yeah. It, But he went and then to Richard Branson to start V2. And Sean O'Hagan went went with him to V2 with the High Lamas. So it, we met Sean in, um, in the Long Hall, or not the Long Hall, Stag's in head. the Stag's Head one night. And we had a really good chat with him. And we did a tour around Ireland with them. Uh, we just weren't musical enough for him, I would think. I mean, it probably would have happened had the kind of musical chairs not happened with the V2 move. It, it's very possible we would have done the album with him. But I don't think he would have been a good fit. We ended up doing it with uh, Stan Naroff from The Stars of Heaven, which to us, was that was a kind of dream team. Because he kind of got 
the kind of lack of musicality he that didn't phase him at all like he i think he really reveled in our inability unlike when we were doing the eps with mark carolyn who is a super musician he was really trying to make us better than we were and kind of fix all the bits and try and make us into a a, a normal kind of industry standard act which was which you know which is which is really his job if you know what i mean but with stan he he kind of could see actually all the bits that don't join up and don't make sense are actually part of the whole aesthetic and what makes us you know kind of what we are so that was it that was the first time really we were recording where we felt here's someone who kind of gets what we're about you know and isn't trying to kind of did the label get that nile <laughs> I was just going to say that, Paul. So the, the more we got into the, doing that with Stan and the more we felt at home, and even being in big studios, being with Stan made it all very comfortable because we were all on the same wavelength. Um, I, I think the, the and Jim was gone from Lakota, long gone from Lakota, so it was Connor. And Connor is, is again, with no, not being disparaging at all here, but Connor would be very meat and two potatoes indie. The fact, I think, that Connor's biggest act after that was JJ72 would kind of sum it up. And JJ72 came from Alan O'Boyle seeing them doing sound one night in O'Connell Street in whatever that, what was that club called? 13th Floor, was it? McGrath's. One of, yeah, McGrath's, 13th Floor, exactly. And Spoiler said to me, you've got to see this band. The, the label have got to see this band. They're like you 2 playing in, playing in the shed. They're, just, they're, they're ridiculous. And uh, I, so Connor went along to see them and signed them. But they, they were perfect Connor Brooks music. Sure. I'm not slagging anyone off there. But so... The, they didn't get us and they were never going to get us. And just on the Sean O'Hagan thing, ironically, years later, when we got much more into sort of very basic kind of kraut rocky stereo lab kind of stuff, just like really repetitive, so very rubbish kraut rock, essentially. I think Sean O'Hagan would have been, I would have loved to hear what he would have done with that and um, with his like his stereo lab background. But uh, but yeah, no, spot on. We weren't musical enough for Sean, um, but we were we were pretty much perfect for Stan. But the label were never going to get behind yeah. that. I, I, I think we, we we knew that. I mean, we, we pretty much knew that as we were. We didn't care. No, we were kind of, I think at that stage, we were, there was there was always a kind of willful undercutting ourselves or we were, you know, there was a, a kind of a self-destruct, not in a kind of a cliched rock and roll way, but we, we were definitely, we, well, we, we were both, we had massive sort of, well, I certainly had a massive sort of uh, ego about how important the band was. But at a certain point, it became obvious that that fantasy was, you know, was exactly that, just a fantasy. And I think that's when you kind of realise, yeah, you know, there was two things to it. We kind of, the bigger the failure you are, the more of a success you really are, which is kind of the, the, the stars of heaven and the replacements and Alex Chilton and all these glorious failures they were our template, you know, so we were like, if we are successful, that's a, yeah. th- that is a failure on our terms. You know, <laughs> the only way for us to really succeed is to kind of bomb entirely and be totally misunderstood. So having Stan on board and making a kind of a very extremely downbeat album that was kind of had no real kind of it just it was it was like not as dark. It was almost like an indie joy division, if you know what I mean, a, a, an Americana joy division. In terms of, you know, musical inability, songs about death, it didn't in any way match up with the one band they'd signed or with the three EPs that we'd recorded, which were kind of trying to be a straightforward indie proposition, you know? Well, the the other thing that we're we're kind of missing completely there is, that's all spot on, what we're completely missing is our other big thing was Dublin. And like, so 
songs from Dublin about Dublin and and steeped in Dublin. We were all living in town, and we were, and it was you know it was a time when we were all out every night of the week and every day of the week, and you know and and Dublin was our playground, and 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 the history of Dublin was important to us, and the, the sort of feel of Dublin, which is really hard to obviously get across, but that that was really important to us at that period. Would you have been aware of things like? Ghost Town by the Radiators or w- would you have been aware of the Blades? Oh God. Would you then have seen yourselves as in that lineage? Oh yeah. Jesus, yeah. I mean, I mean, yeah, definitely. Like Phil Chevron is another one of the people who refused to produce us. <laughs> we, were, we were close. We wanted Phil Chevron and he was it. No, thanks lads. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, oh God, yeah, completely with the, the Blades particularly. With, like Down Market is the best song ever written about Dublin and will never be beat. All about Widow's Walk by Stars of Heaven. Again, speak for myself, that Dublin, the Dublin of the Blades and, and of uh, Ghost Town and of Under Cleary's Clock and Phil Chevron's and, and Paul Cleary's and Stephen Ryan's. And that's hard for Connor Brooks to sell. <laughs> Around this time, Fergus, I saw the Ultramontanes play gig in Cork and uh, they put on a show. I mean, it was polish, you know, and and I can remember ye at the, at the same time. And I was kind of going, what's this label up to? Like, I couldn't figure it out, you know? Yeah, and I spent a lot of time with the Ultimate, sorry, a lot of time with the Ultimate Tank. Another thing is I was managing the band, or we were managing the band, but I was going over to London and stuff, and that was it. That was a complete no-no. And, you know, you can't manage your own bands because nobody takes you seriously. Uh, no, nobody listens to a word you say because you're just the bloke in the band or the blokes in the band. But the Ultramontanes, um, so I'd go to London with them and their manager and stuff. And um, the lovely lads, but yeah, come, come and they were very Camden Town, 1996, 97, rip-hop, skinny trousers, dyed hair, all of that. And, and, and we were like pints of stout and, you know, miserabilism and have you heard the replacements? That was, yeah, so it was very schizophrenic. But again, that comes back to Jim having left and the label having no real. JJ72 and the Ultimate Tains made a lot of sense. Us, not so much, yeah. Barry, you were writing more songs around this time and was it always okay in, in making decisions about whose songs to record? Or, I mean, it must be hard when there's three brothers in a band, Lee, all that stuff. I thought you might ask me that. Yeah, I thought you might ask me that. <laughs> so I was thinking about this. But I think actually, on, on reflection, I think, you know, like every band is a kind of family in microcosm. And actually, I think in retrospect, it's probably easier being in a band with actual brothers because then the roles are really clear and the lines of communication are really clear. And yeah, anything that needs to get said tends to get said, in my experience. And so actually, it was it was it was a pretty simple affair. It was great. So diplomatic there, Lee. You're really too nice. Oh, it's like, you know, look, I mean, yeah, it, it certainly wasn't without arguments or, or wasn't without tension, but I think pretty much everything got expressed. And in retrospect, that's 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 really great. It meant that there was nothing that didn't get said, for better or for worse, but generally, I think, for better. But we're, we're all still willing to be in the same virtual room together. <laughs> <laughs> but Barry, you were writing more around this time and, and yeah. you were coming in, obviously, with songs and, and that meant... Another of your songs, Niall, mightn't be on a record, you know, like how did all that stuff work out between the two of you? Well, I would say Barry was always the more musical of us. Like I learned, Barry taught me how to play guitar or what little guitar I learned. So Barry was three years younger than me, but he was teaching me how to play the guitar. So that's that was um, kind of my entry into it. And I only learned enough to do just to 
to kind of be able to kind of, you know, kind of build these very simple songs out of. And I felt after the three EPs, which there was quite a lot of my songs on them, you know, when I was going back, I didn't listen to the EPs. I did. I listened to the two albums for this, which I still still think stand up and I didn't cringe too much. But with the EPs, I kind That's of good. I cringe just because like there's my kind of naivety in topic of songwriting topic and my kind of everything is so kind of gauche and sort of sort of slightly you know it's like if you know it's it's Neil Young with all the kind of the stuff the magic kind of uh, evaporated off and you're just left with the kind of the the you know the kind of the the the, the framework and the, how it fits together and there's no there's no real magic in those things so I I kind of felt at that stage like it, Barry was kind of naturally musical he anything he kind of played or it just kind of flowed whereas with me I felt I was kind of like for myself and Fergus we weren't making music we were making a band if that makes sense it's a kind of a totally weird sort of a thing but the band was what we were creating the music was just something you were obliged to do to kind of justify being a band yeah. you know whereas with Barry kind of was naturally kind of playing lots and lots of guitar and kind of well I don't want to speak for Barry but that it felt for me that's why I felt it took a, a load off my shoulders to kind of step back and also my vocal style again was kind of came in for a lot of kind of it wasn't to everyone's taste so I, I kind of it suited me to kind of step back and listening to those two albums that we the, the two albums I've only a couple of songs on them but I actually think you know they're kind of like they're quite distilled versions of what I was trying to do so and even even on the two albums I kind of repeat myself pretty much as well so I, it's not like I had a whole lot of material you know I was kind of fairly so it, it was great well I, I would say um I'm probably at fault for the 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 destruction of our career with the the first album because the first three EPs we kind of I was terrified, so I was sort of happy. Like there's one song, is it When I'm All Alone? Which was, I think I wrote the music, Niall wrote the lyrics and Fergus sang it. So it, it was kind of a good, Fergus was kind of more confident. I was sort of terrified, but I had the ego of the songwriter. So I was quite willing to have stuff recorded. But then on, on the first album, then that sort of became more just me writing and singing the songs and like there, there's that song they're not coming anymore which is just like the dirtiest doomiest thing like I, I was just learning to to write songs so it was but they were very open to me just coming in and and you know recording it I do think Niall's been a little bit unfair on himself I really liked the and I think people really liked the don't give up me is the classic example that there's a sort of naivety and a simplicity to both your vocal and your and your songwriting, especially lyrically, and I think that really worked. And that was that there was sort of an innocence to it. Yeah, exactly. I I agree, and I think that's why people like the first three EPs and the and the first two singles. You know, like "Don't Give Up on Me." They're just really classic, short, great pop songs, and we didn't really have the didn't really have the songwriting chops chops as a band to carry it off. So it it's. You know that album is. I haven't listened to that in years. Like, but we. I mean, we managed to spend a lot of the record company's money on making a very downbeat, dirty, doom laden. I can't think of any of the words at the moment. 
Yeah, I mean, like that—that that doesn't really happen anymore these days. Uh, I'm not sure if if people get to spend uh, record label money or if there is any record label money. I don't. Yeah, people's memories of the band. There's a kind of a thing where you know when we signed to the label initially to Lakota, they were spending a lot of money. We weren't seeing the money, but the money was going on you know radio pluggers and PR people, and there was a whole group of people in London busy kind of plugging getting us into the enemy and melody maker and all the rest of it a machine yeah and onto radio and and no disco was featuring us here the the label at the start were very enthusiastic and they the, for the three eps the kind of the first ep landed and that was kind of it did quite well i think in in terms of pr and and some sort of sales but as each release went on there was kind of we were there was less it, by the time the first album came out that i it literally came out to nothing. You know, we did three dates in in England. I I'm, it, I don't even know that it, it did it get reviewed in the in the UK press. Sure, the album must have as well. I, I, just to correct one not correction, I was add one thing. We were also single of the week on 120 minutes on MTV. Um, so there was a um, if, if if you add all that stuff up, like MTV single of the week and Melody Maker Play Session, there was a kind of momentum there. That completely stopped. The album didn't help, obviously, uh, sort of uh, selling out stadiums point of view. Niall talks about the PR and the radio pluggers, but they didn't really do anything. And like we did a radio tour where we did, we went to Manchester, Nottingham, Fiora, Sheffield, wherever, and we and we um, went on local radio stations. That was and that was it. That took a day, and that was it. Uh, I don't remember doing any interviews. Uh, like not not our fault, but just uh, everything just sort of happened at the same time. It was a sort of a I would just say it, a, a perfect storm of no promotion. The record wasn't very promotable. We didn't really care that much that it wasn't. We, we, we thought they were just talking nonsense and they were talking nonsense, but we knew that. So it was a kind of perfect storm of why that album didn't take over the whole world. That's my excuse and I'm sticking to it. When a label then doesn't take up the option and when you're free agents again, that type of thing, or, or when you're dropped or whatever the language is used, you know, presumably you get to the point where you go, Right, OK, we've two options here. We can either break up or we go it alone. What what happened was after the first album came out and the, we'd kind of fallen out of love with each other, with ourselves and the label, we got Dave O'Grady to manage us. Sorry, no, just to give a bit of context to this, what happened was they, they wouldn't drop us, Paul, is what happened. Get back to this where we actually demoed. We, we got into a situation which was the nightmare scenario which the Ultramontanes were in, which were they, do, they started paying for us to demo our songs so we ended up demoing maybe 20 songs for the for the second album. Uh, Dave O'Grady came on board to manage us and manage the relationship with the label because we'd kind of fallen out with them. So I found all these old emails. Like there's an email from uh, Mark, who was Mark Tattersall, Tattersall, who who became, he was Jeremy Pierce's second in command and he became the, uh, he was drummer with Cabaret Voltaire at one point. And he's a really lovely guy. We got on with him really well. But there's an email from him and he's on about, he's saying, um, yeah, I think John Cale would be the ideal producer for this new album. And I have a good contact for him now. This is an email to Dave, not to us, you know, so it's not for, you know, he's not big enough us, but he's selling Dave, you know, I'm going to, be, I'll get on, I'll get some of these demos to John Cale. And so we we made a list. We wanted to do the, the the second album with, we didn't, John Cale was not on our list, but we would have jumped at it. Jim Dickinson. Jim Dickinson. Who else? Was a, who the hell else was on that? Uh, Mitch Easter. Mitch Easter. Mitch Easter. Mitch Easter. Yeah, Mitch Easter was on on board. I think, I think even Langer and Winstanley were on it. <laughs> like, like, so we we spent a considerable amount of time. We we 
and they were demos. This is the thing we started recording demos. They were demos. They were, they it was back to making these kind of meat and potato recordings of our songs. Everything was correct. It was in time. It was in tune, and um, but they were very boring sort of recordings. We just got frustrated. I mean, partly because we could see the Ultramontanes had had been stuck in demo hell. I don't know if their their album did eventually come out. I think, and then they ended up in a they they were basically not getting any music out and we kind of could see okay this is going to happen to us as well where we're just you know producing these demos so eventually we said to Dave look can you negotiate to get us the hell out of this scenario which he did we weren't dropped we were we negotiated our our, our release because I said they wouldn't drop us they wanted to keep us in development hell like they had kept the ultimate it was fine for them because they were getting the outlay was on demos there was no other outlay and then there was um they didn't have to produce anything and they were they were on this money from Sony and that's not a record label to me um or certainly to us that wasn't a record label we basically got Dave in to get us out of the deal and hopefully get the masters back the thing with Dave was we go back right to being kids with Dave so his mother and our mother uh, were nursing together in Dublin and Fergus and Dave and Shane McGrath ran Casba promotions then and did all the, the gig stuff. And so we, we knew Dave he, and he kind of got us, if you know what I mean. So he was the ideal man to kind of dig us out of that hole. And also he was, unlike us, he was a kind of a pragmatist and he wasn't romantic about the music biz. If you know, like he kind of, he realised there was a kind of a, you know, a reality that you had to meet whereas we were kind of romantics or, or, you know, so it was kind of good to have him kind of, also to say the turnaround from us doing these demos and getting the kind of fantasy of Mitch Easter or somebody doing the record to us kind of going, you know what, this isn't going to happen. Let's pull the plug and do it ourselves. Happened actually really quickly. And we got so, a price from Jim Dickinson. I remember he was into doing it. I don't know if he was into it because for the, for the money or what, like whatever, it was a gig for him. But, but we came back to yeah, Jim Dickinson was interested. $70,000. <laughs> and like for a label that was basically essentially creation, essentially Oasis, um, they had that money. I mean, the money wouldn't have been an issue, but there's zero chance. Like we were laughing going, yeah, right, 70 grand. Yeah. But, and they didn't know who Jim Dickinson was. That's the other thing. We were like, Jim Dickinson. And they were like, yeah, yeah what? Would you have that disconnect? And, De- and we, we essentially got Dave in to get us out of that. And, and, and he did. And he did a, a smashing job. And yeah. Uh, and that's how that's how we got out of it, and that's how the second album then became. And what did we do? Did we keep those demos, Noel? I can't even remember what what happened to those demos. You mean the record, the physical record? Do we have access to them when we were? Did, we just went and redid. We didn't use any of that stuff, is what I'm saying. No, no, no. We didn't release any of that. No, we. But but the thing was, we had worked out the songs that actually because we had a reputation for being kind of quite lackadaisical slackers partly self-created but we were actually really diligent and like we rehearsed basically two nights a week for every week pretty much for the entire time we were going and then gigs on top of that so we could we were you know and we we had full-time jobs on top of all that so we were kind of we put a quite a bit of work in by the time we got to do the second album and now the recording circumstances of it because we were basically through Dave and we We'd, I think we might have played a few gigs with the Pernice brothers at that stage, had we? Yeah. Didn't Dave license them to Independent in Ireland? Yeah. yeah, so he was releasing their records, and I think that's how we met Tom Monaghan. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Had we met Tom before he came to record the album? I, I can't... Yeah, yeah. we, we met him with the Pernice The first Pernice brothers tour, I basically drank my way around Ireland with, with Peyton and Tom uh, and watched Pernice brothers every night. It was brilliant. Was it? And, and, and actually, 
Overcome by Happiness is the 25th anniversary. I, it's it. the most money I've ever spent on vinyl. Uh, I, I pre-ordered <laughs> it and, and I nearly had to take out mortgage to do it. But but it's for Joe and it's for me. So it's I'm more than happy to do it and can't wait to get it. But it was it was that tour, Overcome by Happiness. Dave put, did the tour. Dave licensed the album. We played a couple of the gigs. I hung out with them. We all hung out with them. Uh, and we just got on so well with Brilliant. them. That's how we met Tom, isn't it? Yeah, and Tom had recorded that album. Right. So... So we knew he he knew his stuff. So he Dave booked him to come over to Dublin and record this album. At that stage, we'd no studio to do it in. And then we had the harebrained idea of just hiring a mixing desk and recording equipment and mics and just doing it in a nice house somewhere, kind of the the kind of fantasy of the Stones mobile. Kind of, <laughs> yeah, sort of thing. So that, so that was the romance of it. But as the time was ticking down and Tom was about to get on the plane, we had nowhere to do it. And I think, Barry, you were the one who secured the location for the recording. I have no recollection of that whatsoever. <laughs> Well, it, it was true. You were doing a, a some sort of a, a course with Justin Carroll. Who were the with Justin Carroll? The same fuse box out in Finglas. Yeah, yeah, Justin Carroll. The Carrolls. That's where you were doing the course. Oh, sorry, you were doing it. Yeah. You asked. I don't know how this came up, but it was definitely you who sorted out, Barry, because it was uh, the Carrolls. Basically, are kind of massive musical family on the south side and they are kind of quite bohemian jazz people mainly. jazz people and yeah i think justin played with uh, van morrison and glenn hansard and the whole family were super musical yeah we don't know how they fell in with us but oh yeah yeah it's coming back to me now sorry yeah 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 um roy carroll yeah absolutely yeah it's flooding back now yeah <laughs> uh, i do i do i do yeah yeah i don't remember the you know sort of much about it, but I remember being on the course at Roy Carroll and then being in the house. Yeah, no, I think you just said to him, you know, we're 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 looking for somewhere to record. He just said, "I'll do it out in our place." So we just lugged all this hard material, hard equipment into their garage. I can't remember. I think we were in the garage doing the live bits, and Tom was in a kind of there was a, a room off of which had a grand piano, which like a, a Steinway, I think. You know, it was just a real kind of bohemian sort of a house where it was really kind of... It, so the, it, it was no skin off their nose that there was a kind of a, a idiotic rock and roll band in the garage. But it, um, it was also very leafy suburbia. So it was sort of... It was in Windy Arbor, I think. So it was kind of like interesting um, recording setup. A few episodes ago, I had the two lads from Jet Plane Landing. Now, their first band was from Derry called Cuckoo. I don't know, do you remember? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I remember. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So Cuckoo's debut album on Geffen, Residential Studio, Ed Buller, the suede producer, loads of money. And yet it's the album they record as Jet Plane Landing in a shed. That's the album that stands up. Like, what is it about situations like that, do you think? Why am I saying, let's talk about Lights of the City? You've just described the circumstances of its recording with like very little money, a producer he wasn't, of course, he wasn't on your big list of producers. You know, somehow that's the record released on Dave's label as opposed to released with Sony's backing. When people talk about Jubilee All-Stars, that's of your three albums. That's the album that people kind of always talk about. Why do you think that is? Have you got a, a theory on that? Partly at that stage, we'd, we'd played a lot of gigs and we'd demoed this material. So we'd kind of we were in a good position for it. But we also, John Hegarty came in and played 
I think he only came in for a, a couple of hours, but he completely makes that album because he's just brilliant. Like, so there's his organ playing and piano playing on it. And it just, he, you know, he totally got us and was perfect for kind of giving it that sort of honky tonk kind of rock and roll thing that we were kind of, you know, the the kind of the, the Jayhawks fantasy, as it were. He, he was 70 grand cheaper than Jim Dickinson as well. <laughs> but he was brilliant, you know, and and um, and, and um, Brian Rice also played harmonica on it. We weren't too shabby ourselves at that stage in terms of we we were we got as good as we were ever going to get. Yeah, like I was just talking about the first album where I I didn't I was just learning how to write songs and I think it was just by the by that album I'd gone oh okay this is yeah blah. you know it's much more just better yeah. on on my part. Sorry, Lee. Like having been through the experience with Lakota through all the kind of turmoil of that and coming out the other side, maybe there was a freedom like we were kind of producing, running this ourselves, we we're paying for this ourselves. There was a freedom as well there was no kind of I mean, there was a time constraint but we knew what we wanted to do we could get it done really quickly and it was that we want there was a drive that we wanted to do this we wanted to finish it and this was a record we wanted to make you know we'd been in a scenario where we we're kind of pulling against the label for like a year and a half or however long it had been it was just you know this was the record that we wanted to make and how we wanted to make it and I think maybe the kind of adversity of the circumstances helped push us into you know good performances and, and and making things quite definitive and i guess the other thing that i would say just we were talking about success earlier and i think for us there was always a big distinction between or around what what does success mean and i think for this band it was always around the idea of making records and once you finish one starting another and it wasn't necessarily about kind of commercially successful records or, or selling out big arenas but that capacity to keep doing songs and keep putting them out and maybe this was a culmination of that as well as, as well i'd tell you that's spot on lee 100% spot on i also think i think the cover is a big part of that album like i think cover artwork is, is a bit of a lost art no offense to Nile, makes us living out of it partly just because people don't make albums for vinyl anymore or they're beginning to again now but 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 that painting is is just great and it really sort of summed us up kind of summed up what we wanted to say about dublin in a painting if if that makes any sense and the whole package leaves like it was it comes out all that stuff you're saying about a freedom and a and a sort of yeah look it's, i just love that yeah it's, it's still look how moody it is it's still really moody and dark fergus column uh, uh... You might remember the name of the artist. Colm Green. Colm Green. Miles mate, yeah. Yeah, I, I was in college with Colm. He's a brilliant artist. Yeah, basically, we just went around. To, or I think I maybe I just went around. We all, we had, these were kind of a lot of our, of the, um, our haunts back in the day. Certainly, um, uh, the Long Hall and the Lord Edward uh, and Frank Ryan's as it was then. And Bogart's menswear is also there, which I think that was our go-to for dodgy secondhand suits. Where was Bogart's Nile? It was up on um on Anger Street, I think, was it? Yeah, Anger Street. Anger Street. Yeah, yeah. Wear it again, Sam. Wear it again, Sam. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. That was the <laughs> invariably you'd buy whatever. I remember getting a suit in there, and of course it it was for a, a man of in God knows what sort of girth. But uh, they, then they'd send you across the road and up the stairs and there was a, a woman there who'd uh, take it in and, you know, make the best of it. So we thought we were totally gnick. But um, so th there's a kind of a, the, the whole thing. This is our kind of it's it's 
our version of our, our romanticized Dublin. Of course, this is the Dublin that was disappearing at this point in terms to be kind of. So there's a, this sort of we were obsessed with like the 50s, 40s, Bagatonia being, you know, even further back to, you know, Joyce and all of that stuff, all the stuff that the the, the Fontaines um, have, you know, taken over the world with. We were doing that donkeys years ago and we were actually dubs. Oh, no. Stop. <laughs> no, but you know, but, but my point is it's... Um, like that, I know what the, you the, mean. The, I know what the you point mean. was that, that, that like Fergus was saying earlier, is Dublin being our sort of um, yeah, like a, a kind of our muse or our well, we were doing a, you know there was a disjoint insofar as we were doing indie music, which is essentially an Anglo-American form. There was always oh, there's, oh, in indie circles, there's always been this joint this disjoint between Irishness and this sort of international music form. And a lot of Irish people who get into indie music or alternative music have a kind of cultural cringe about traditional music or about Irish culture. We kind of had that, but we didn't, because when it came to Irish literature, we were extremely proud of that. And we were also proud of the Stars of Heaven and the Blades and so on and, and so forth. So we were trying to kind of bring a kind of a, British and American form into an Irish context, I suppose. I think that's really interesting what you're saying, Anna, because I think that's why Dublin doesn't have a lineage like Glasgow or Manchester does. And like I think Dublin as a city, it doesn't scratch the, the, the bottom rung of either of those cities or even Sheffield or, you know, certainly not London. But Manchester and Glasgow, similar size, similar sort of demographics, you know, very similar cities. And they have this massive long lineage of, of indie alternative rock, call it whatever you want, dance music, all of it. And Dublin doesn't. I think that 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 I think U2 is a massive part of that. And like I'm 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 not a fan of the Fontaines, uh, or Lancome or any of them, but like good on them. Particularly Lancome because they have taken that cringe out of trad completely and, and them and others and, and totally good and, and that can only be good for the future. And uh, I think we did a bit of that with like a lot of Barry stuff was very folky. And, and still is, I was very sold of stuff is that that's there in like in sort of big starry kind of stuff in the Americana that we were really into as well. It is obviously rooted in, in American folk. So we always did have that you to be wary of it. So you don't didn't veer into to sort of cringy stuff. And I think, that, I think that's changed now. Uh, and, but the only thing that annoys me about the Fontaines is, is when people say that the first band have really got the essence of Dublin. No one's ever done this before. No one's ever written about Dublin. No one's had an authentic Dublin voice. I'm like, oh, the Blades did it. Start, the Stars I haven't did it. Like, you know, tons of Dublin bands did it. Like, we did it. So that's the only thing that kind of gets me. But, ha but having said that, good on them. And, and for making, they helped make Dublin a more sort of acceptable place for, for indie alternative music. The only thing I'm saying in their favour is they make a good racket, which ultimately... Ultimately, is all that really matters. It's fair play to them for that. It's worth saying, though, like the kind of climate for music in Dublin and in Ireland generally now is so much better than it was when we were around. I mean, it's incredible. I was just thinking before Christmas, you know, there's a run up of gigs, the Olympia, Vicar Street. Not every night it's Irish acts filling these venues. You know, 20 or 25 years ago, maybe the Frames could do one night in Vicar Street but this idea, you know, you could have Lancome, you could have CMAT, you could have Fontaines, you can have uh, the Murder Great. Capital. And the audience isn't kind of going because it's it, there's some sort of a B Division English act. These This is the main sort of, you know what I mean? It's not, it, we, we that sort of confidence in our own kind of musical output is is, is really, it's completely yeah. different to where we were 
of what we were operating in. And it's great. Yeah, great. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Colum Green, the artist, was it? She asked Colum to paint these pubs. As in, was it Colum's idea, or were you asking Colum, could you do X, Y, Z for us? I knew he could do it, so I, I just his style was very much kind of fantasy paintings, and I'm just into kind of realism. But I knew he had the chops to do it, so I basically took pictures of all these places and just uh, gave them to him and said, "Can you kind of put this into a an imagined street scene?" You know. Listen, I have a quote from McKinney here. I think this is when McKinney was writing for the Sunday Times. So he's saying the songwriting of Nile and especially Barry is remarkable. Suffused with poignancy, memory and regret, the theme of Dublin struggling to make the transition from history laden museum piece to modern multicultural city is a recurring one on the album. Wait, hold on. I'm going to have to get that, write that down. I don't have that quote from my... Or my press kit. Where did, where did you get that? <laughs> <laughs> He's bang on though, and that's and that, yeah. that Barry's solo work perfect description of that as well. But yeah, I think that's absolutely bang on, and and the whole sort of the the move yeah from the city that we grew up in, like in the in the, not to sound like an owl lad, but you know the I used to think the drive in down through um Clambrassel Street uh, into Christchurch when everything was derelict. And I mean everything and how it looks now. I mean, they made a mess of a lot of it, but like how the city was literally falling down around us in the 80s when we were growing up and in the 90s when beginnings of the Celtic Tiger and it was it was struggling to become a more modern city and all that sort of stuff. That's exactly where we were, not consciously, but that's where we came from. And that's exactly where we, we came out of that. Um, and that's why there's a, I would suggest there's a confidence with, with younger Irish bands now. First of all, they can reach the whole world without having to be signed to a label, which is, which is amazing. But, but the other thing is that Dublin's a much more confident city and people are much more confident about being from Dublin in a way that Glasgow and Manchester people always have been. But here it's always been a bit a frames, you two, and it doesn't sound like that. You know, one of my good buddies is in an emotional fish or was in an emotional fish. Smashing guy, like, and he, he's always laughing at me going, you hate my bands. And I go, no. <laughs> he would always say that they always felt that, that every time when they went to tour in the UK, particularly, that it was they were always a sort of sub, it was, it was always about you two. It was always about, and it was always... Be more Irish, be more diddly eyed, be more sort of stage Irish. And I think we've moved past that. Uh, but if it comes from that 90s change from, from a seriously poor city into a modern European capital, and we were in the, we were in the middle of when that yeah. was all happening. I think that's yeah. absolutely spot on, McKinney. Not in that piece, Niall. I think in a different piece, Niall, by Mick again, you said we've seen our share of the business. We're not built to withstand the current corporate climate. But I'm very proud of this album. I think it's going to stick around as a document. I think you hit something there, Niall. I've been listening back to this record recently and um, it says as much about Dublin today as it did 20-something years ago. I'm listening to it and I'm going, my God, these themes are, are just as relevant today as they were when this album was made. I think that's because the lockdown uh, has brought Dublin back 20 years from my uh, last journey home. And it felt a lot like... Dublin in 1999. I think so, Barry. There's a there's a dereliction around the city as well, isn't there? Which very much seeps into some of the themes of the record, I think. Well, I think our obsessions at that time were no other bands were dealing with that sort of kind of gentrification or, you know, uh, kind of, you know, both myself and Barry wrote songs uh, uh, around the theme of racism independently. And even then, I don't think anyone 
in Ireland kind of thought that that this could be an issue or that that we were facing into it. So that those songs are, I think, yeah, if they that that album the album could come out today and it it would it it doesn't sound dated lyrically, which is bizarre because I would have thought especially since we were capturing that snapshot of a changing city. But I think we were so conscious of the change happening and we were kind of like anxious about, you know, loss, but also kind of, as it turns out, you know, some of the things we lost were, it was good to lose those things, if you know what I mean. So it's, I dislike the idea of nostalgia and of over-romanticizing a past, which which is very much kind of part of what we were doing I think because we did, we were trying to kind of take on things like, you know, homelessness, uh, racism, gentrification. So those themes are through the album and maybe they weren't occurring to other people at that time. To us, they seemed very, very apparent. And I think even when the record came out, it was a bit kind of like, uh, you're, you're, you know, but now it seems that they're all kind of central topics to where we're at as a society. So it's interesting. I, I don't know how the hell that that happened, you know. What are your thoughts on that, Lee? I think I think that what Barry and Anon and Fergus are saying is it's all relevant. And I think maybe as well where we were situated, we were practicing in the inner city. It was a bit of a dump where we practiced, but it was like in the middle of a lot of like social change, a lot of kind of dereliction, you know, kind of the the kind of drug problem was really evident as well. So we were very much kind of in the middle of this. And I suppose like look. As songwriters, Barry and Nile are both very reflective people, so they were just kind of reflecting on the changes around them. I suppose, look, this this seems to be a bit of a constant in Dublin's history, isn't it? Because, I mean, you know, I know that a joke at the time was the required reading for the album was uh, The Destruction of Dublin by Frank MacDonald. So it, it's a pretty constant theme how the people in charge of the city don't look after the residents of the city and how it gets developed, you know, and sadly, sadly, it's still pertinent now, you know. Yeah, I think that's spot on, Lee, but I also think on top of that is that each generation thinks that their version of the city is unique. But as you say, they're the, they're the same problems and it's sort of drug use and the dereliction and the homelessness and all the things. And as Barry says, it got worse during and post lockdown pandemic. Yeah, what you're saying is 100% correct, but the Unimalalis of this world think that it's completely unique now that nightclubs are closing down. You know, that, that never happened before. The Dublin was this amazing place in, in our day. And we're like, but your point about where we were rehearsing, you wouldn't send a dog in there. You really would. Like We used to joke that uh, one day we were going to go in and find Rasher's Tierney <laughs> from Trumpet City dead in the corner. Yeah. But then there, there was one day we were in there and we got uh, locked in because there was like a sort of like little steps down and it, it was uh, like a sort of like a, an alleyway that was covered. And we were in, the, I think myself and Lee were there, I think what just been the two of us rehearsing. And uh, these two junkies came in shooting up and they were there for hours and uh i think at the time we were terrified uh but uh, we probably thought like in 20 years time will this will be a great uh anecdote for a podcast once they're invented <laughs> oh yeah it was definitely like a sort of lou reed uh definite like the the late 90s i mean i was mugged you know more often than i wasn't you were mugged on a regular basis yeah i was mugged twice in 24 hours by the same guy i was mugged going out to fuse box in fingless to where I met uh, Roy Carroll, the guy who hooked us up with the studio. I was mugged outside the Lord Edward one night and I managed to convince the guy that I didn't have any money because I said, I go to Bribe Street for to get my rent allowance. And he was like, all right, buddy. 
And then I just got a brand new mobile phone, which he'd made me put on the ground. And then I drunkenly walked off and he didn't mug me, but I still, I left my mobile phone behind. But did you get a song out of it, Barry? Yeah, I was going to say that, yeah. Did you get a song? I probably, I, yeah, I got about five albums out of that probably. <laughs> but uh, no, but that's that's kind of the thing that, um, like Dublin, when I went back to Dublin, I'm not living in Dublin currently, when I went back last summer, I, I lived on South Richmond Street for years. And I felt I felt like an edge there that I, that I felt in the, late 90s when I was going through my mugging career or being mugged career I was mugged a lot around that area and it was really edgy in the mid to late 90s and that changed before the pandemic well like you know South Richmond Street is kind of the Portobello is Leo Varadkar's living there you know it, it became really fashionable but in the late 90s late 1990s it was it was pretty rough it's a silly question are you proud of this record I am anyway, definitely. Yeah. I, I, you know, listening back to it over the weekend, I was actually surprised because in my own mind, I'd kind of thought the first album was a more kind of a complete work of art. It's probably more pure, but it's not as good a record insofar as it's a, I could understand why listeners would be turned off. You know, it's not, you know, it's, it does the lights of the city has a kind of, it's, a, it's, it's, it has a musicality to it, which is kind of, the one and only time we achieved that. And I think in around that time live, we were actually, because we did expand then John Hegarty did, you know, and um, Ryan Rice came along and would play with us. And I think we, you know, we were filling Whelan's at that stage and we were actually, because we were always patchy live, we could go either way, but we, we, we definitely had a run of gigs where we were, you know, we felt, it felt really like we had the, the audience were up for it and, and we were kind of, managing to do it you know so i uh, yeah i am really proud of the record i was, I was pleasantly surprised partly with the, the fact that the lyrics are are so pertinent to where we are now but also like the just the general musicality of it and there's nothing on it that's kind of was making me wince you know which is is something i'm proud of it but i'm hoping that the the picture on the back cover is uh it gets lost in it it's probably on the internet somewhere but like I, I had like wisdom teeth issues and I refused to go to a dentist. So I, I turned up for this. I don't know whose idea it was to go to um, Lafayette. Yeah, Lafayette, you know, traditional family uh, photography studio. And I had been on the tear for a few days. I, my, I For some reason, I decided to cut my own hair and I had like wisdom teeth issues. So I've got, it looks like Elvis, the last days of Elvis. Yeah. I love how stylized it is and how uh, and, and they said we were in there and they were like going, oh that's the seat that uh, Eamon de Valera sat in to get his uh, his portrait done and one of us probably me went over to sit in it oh, I think it was you actually Barry and uh, and they said, don't sit in it because <laughs> Eamon de Valera's chair that's very much Nile um, uh, like obviously all the art direction is all is all Nile um, highly stylized yeah I think that's great in a, in a sort of a uh, very strange kind of way you have to know that it's stylized but the Lafayette does that for you well, the thinking on this one was I was into the um Craftworks Trans Europe Express the well Craftwork always their artwork always had this kind of uh, ironic element to it but I love those kind of pictures that they'd gone for a 1930s sort of studio portrait of themselves in in suits you know and I thought well let's we have to kind of do an homage to that I, just because Lafayette was there, it's been there. I, they've moved subsequently, but they're still on the go. But the studio that we went to was the one they they've been there since 
the 19th century. So it kind of felt like another tie back to to that sort of we were always looking for roots into the uh, into a lost Dublin, you know. So so that was it. So it's 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 craft work via via kind of 19th century Dublin. I, I'm also uh, proud of the song Lights of the City, which like was kind of a bit of a leap forward for me as a songwriter. And I think around that time I went to Lee with like a cassette for we used to it's amazing what you can do now with Garage Band. It just comes free on a on a MacBook. We used to have the those four track cassettes and it, whatever you did, it sounded rubbish. You could have like Mitch Easter in the rehearsal room with you. It still sound rubbish. But I, I recorded a, a, like 10 songs and I gave them to Lee and he kind of just went, yeah, yeah, this one. That's, that was I knew that was the one to kind of go and sort of like work on. And Great song. I still do that, like, you know, in a solo live set, kind of, you know, one of the last songs. I just think it's, it's stood up. And I usually make the joke that uh, the guard, this is a bit of a humble brag or just a brag. Uh, the Guardian said, uh, review said it was like the first song about the bittersweet effects of uh, urban gentrification. And my joke is like, uh, Someone said to me, it's the only song about the bittersweet effects of urban gentrification. Funnily enough, Barry, when we got we got four out of five in The Guardian, because you know I was saying earlier about um like no reviews for the first album, and I, I can't really I'm sure there must be, but I don't really remember. I was working in Tower and uh when uh Light City came out and um got four out of five in The Guardian and we used to joke about the Friday lunchtime, the fifty pound man, because it was so true. So the Guardian would come out. And the fifty pound man would come out of his office at lunchtime and would spend all his money on on the new albums that were reviewed in the Guardian. That was a real phenomenon. That, that wasn't made up. That was so true. Guys of who are our age now, but like you know, back then, twenty five years ago, wherever it was. And I was outside having a smoke in Wicklow Street and talking to a mate of mine. And Mike Scott walked up, and my mate knew Mike Scott, and they were chatting to him. Mike Scott said, "Oh, we got four out of faith in the Guardian for our new album." And I said, "So do we." <laughs> and I was, he had the Guardian with him, and I was said, "That's our review," and he was like, "That's mine." I said, "I know who the fuck you are, Mike." You know, and it was just sort of like you know, sort of if you're if you're kind of looking for um, outside validation for for everything we've been through and, and stuff with the label and all that, it was like standing with Mike Scott. It, it goes back to what you've been saying about like bands, Irish bands now. That it's kind of like not a shock to be in the Guardian, but it it, it was so unusual that we were in the Guardian. I think. Um, there was a, a Dublin journalist, I think George Byrne actually mentioned that we got reviewed in The Guardian in whatever, probably in The Herald or whatever he was writing for. So that's how kind of it was, you know, notable to get a review. Now, you know, that's one of the things I kind of like. I, I don't know. I don't know whether to be jealous of Irish bands who are in The Guardian because I don't know if they're Irish or not. Whereas back in the day, it used to be like, it's an Irish band. In the, now it's sort of like, where, where they, are they? Oh, they're, you know, it's it's not remarkable. You know, it's kind of. Sorry, Paul, it just reminded me of that Harry's point there about not knowing bands of Irish. Back then, it was like the mean fiddler. Irish week. Here's 20 crap Irish bands and one good one. And Ryan and I are going to fly them over. That made me die a little bit inside. That we would we would have turned that down with extreme prejudice if we offered one of them. Now you don't know. And now, now it's like people have. have got to the stage where we don't have those cringy Irish weeks and, and all that sort of stuff. Lee. Talking about reviews for the first albums jogged my memory. The one review that stuck with me, we did we did get a review in the Irish Times and it was written by Kitty Holland, who does social affairs now. And I always wanted to say this, but she really got the first album. She really responded to it well. It was like, 
she actually understood what we were trying to do with with the first album. I think with the second album, maybe what helps it to, to kind of stay with people is the fact it's really coherent. There's a real coherency to it, like from, from the sleeves to the playing and, and the kind of lyrics and the presentation. And I think, you know, look, you know, it was the culmination of a period of time. I think we managed to capture something about our spirit and maybe unconsciously capture something about what was going on in the city at that time as well. So maybe that's what people respond to. Yeah. I have that last line, Barry, here for you from The Guardian. The closing title track is probably the first song explicitly written about the bittersweet effects of inner city gentrification. An absolute revelation. Oh, I didn't get the revelation, but I'll have to write that. That's the important bit, Barry. An absolute revelation. That's lovely, isn't it? Yeah. Would someone pick a song from the album for me? And maybe set it up. Who's going to do that? Tyler Barry, I think. No, you were you've been listening to it, so maybe. Do you know what it is, sir? To have nowhere to go, which I just think that is that that could be. Lancome could do a version of it, and um, I, I'm not musically, but I mean that the actual the spirit of the the the, the lyric and that. Well, it's a, it's available for uh, the the publishing is. It's available for covering. It's got a very strange chord structure. I don't. I've never actually played it since then because I'm not sure if I. What's interesting about it is it's it's your vocal delivery on it is extremely angry, but not off-putting, which is actually very very hard to do. It's one of the two songs that like talks about immigrants. Um, on the record, isn't it? Yeah, it's 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 a very pretentious. The the line is actually from um. Uh, crime and punishment. Do you know what it is, sir? To have nowhere to go. But I never finished crime and punishments. I I only got as far as the crime. Got the crime bit. <laughs> and I I gave up because it was just it was I couldn't I couldn't take all the, the different names. You know they all have like five names because it's Russian. You know Vladimir Vladovich and uh, so I shouldn't be revealing myself as a dilettante. But final thoughts then on the record, guys. I know it's not the end of the jubilee story of course there was a there was another record we'll have to keep that for another podcast sometime that was covered on vh1 behind the music (laughs) i think it was like the 2004 or something like that was um i'm gonna go straight now and listen to the album because i i'll be honest i haven't in a long time but my final thought would be more about more about the band and where we got to at that stage and and the adversity we've been through you asked what was i proud of the album or we proud of the album definitely proud of the bands and proud of what we how we were, how we conducted ourselves, uh, how we stayed true to what we wanted to do, how we didn't compromise. All the things that crippled our career are, are things that I'm proud of. And I can look back on now and stand over them. And and now when I go back and listen to this, this album again, I'm hoping that's going to that's gonna come through on the record for me as well. And I think it will. Um, and that, that would be my final thought anyway. Cheers, Fergus. Lee, final thought? First of all, just to say thank you for, you know, being interested in kind of spending time talking about the album and looking back at it and it's it's really moving to think that people still like it you know and are interested to hear it so that's amazing that's great yeah i feel really proud of it i remember like making it really well the circumstances the run-up you know how focused we were how much time we spent how much we thought about it and it's just really great that it still resonates somehow, like 20, 22 years later. You know, that's great. Absolutely. 
Cheers, Lee. Thank you. And Niall, we'll give the last word to you, Niall. I don't think I have anything to, to add, really, other than to, to kind of Perfect. To echo the other sentiments. You know, it's it's um, it's um uh, a bit of a, an emotional roller coaster to kind of listen back to it and kind of, it almost feels, it's one of these things where you kind of, it now exists outside of, you know, it's, it's usually when you do something, you're very conscious of the whole mechanics of it. Whereas with this, it feels like it exists out on its own i don't know where i contributed anything or where i had anything it's like it's you know which is a good thing in a way so i, I i'm you know but at the same time i'm not sure whether i it's possible to be it isn't possible to be objective about it so i'm only maybe only proud of it because i'm mixed up in it if you know what i mean if i wasn't in the band i might be oh jesus that jubilee officers they were a pretentious bunch of miserable miserableists you could be great life and you could be very messy life like quite shambolic at times gigs i saw i saw a few gigs where my god you got it together for this album you 100 percent produced in my opinion an absolute classic so for that i just want to say thanks a million and uh, i really do appreciate and, um, and to echo what lee said paul thank you so much for taking the time thanks fergus for contributing all of you barry thank you so much barry jesus we could do a podcast about any number of your own records well i i'm free at, uh, tomorrow so i, I can stay on you wanna... i've got like, i have uh, seven albums we do like, seven more seven by 90 minutes <laughs> You could do like a 24 hour marathon of uh, just me and you talking about my album. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll stay on. I'll stay on. I've got like enough coffee. Brilliant. I've got this. I've got enough coffee in case this. The, the rush Come here. I just want to uh, say thanks a million. Okay. Thanks, Paul. Thank Thanks, you. Paul. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks for having us, Paul. Cheers. See you, lads. See you, Lee. See you, lads. Bye. See you, Lee. Sloan. Bye, everybody. Oh
And that was Do You Know What It Is, Sir, To Have Nowhere To Go, taken from Lights of the City by Jubilee All-Stars. My thanks again to Niall, Fergus, Barry and Lee. Now a few things. If you go to at Learn and Sing on Twitter or paulmcdermott.ie forward slash podcast, you'll find the episode notes and a load of information about Jubilee All-Stars. I've also a link to their old website and they still have a few copies of Lights of the City on CD and vinyl. They also have a few vinyl copies of The Struggle Continues. That was Lights of the City's follow-up, I think from 2004. You'll also find further information about the podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, then please subscribe, like and share. Now, as mentioned earlier, Barry McCormick has to date released seven solo albums. His most recent one, Meantime, was released in 2019. I'll leave a link to that also in the episode notes. What else? Well, Lee Casey is in the band Soft on Crime along with Dylan Phillips, who was uh, in Pet Lamb way back when, and Podrigal Riley, who was in Yay Deadlies. They've just released their great debut album. It's called New Sweet. Again, I'll leave a link to that in the episode notes. The theme music to the podcast is called Irish Rhapsody Redux. It's by Mark Healy, and it's Mark's reworking of a recording I made of the New Light Symphony Orchestra's version of Victor Herbert's Irish Rhapsody. So until the next episode, goodbye.